Welcome to Intersections, the RIT podcast. The important role that scores of female artists played in the origins of animated imagery at Disney has long been overlooked, until now. In today's episode, Mindy Johnson, author and award-winning playwright, talks with RIT assistant professor, animator, and cartoonist Peter Murphy about what up-and-coming artists can learn from the invisible history of these trailblazing women. What is it that got you focused on this theme of your book, Women in the Animation Field? What brought you to that topic? (laughs) Well, um, I had written another book on an early subject of animation, and my editor asked, what's next? And we gravitated towards this idea. I noticed that in my previous work, I'd written about uh, one aspect of the production of a particular character on the inking and painting process. And I thought, well, you know, there really isn't much that explores this. Maybe this could be interesting. And we both thought maybe there's something there. But we both also labored under this preconceived idea that it was an area where it was pretty girls who traced and colored. And um, we thought it would be a charming book about painting and the social aspects of life at Disney Studios during the 30s and 40s. And uh, so in my typical fashion, I began digging in and really getting into the answering so many questions. I'm a very curious person. And in answering those, trying to find answers to those questions, it was challenging. It was very difficult. Every book out there had maybe the same four, maybe five women in their index. You'd have to go straight to the index to try and find anything. And there was nothing. So I had to do some really determined digging into this. And about eight months into my research, it was an avalanche of just how epic and how far-reaching and how masterful the artistry of what not only the women were doing in the world of ink and paint, but also where women were progressing and where women were within animation in the various roles. And women were everywhere. And the level of masterful artistry is beyond what anyone has ever looked at or talked about. And I also had great good fortune to get to a few of our people who are still with us and get their firsthand accounts and get them talking about their experiences. And you mentioned that one of the artists that you uh, worked with (laughs) is now 108 years old. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? (laughs) Yeah, that's Ruthie Thompson. Ruthie, yes, she's 108 years young. She's incredible. Ruthie was about 12 years old, living in Los Angeles, and would walk past a little storefront studio for the Disney Brothers Studios every day on her way to school. And one day, Walter Roy was out front having a cigarette or something, and what's she doing? Oh, we're making cartoons in there. Go on in. So she became the little studio's mascot and would sit next to Roy while he was putting the cells for the earliest Alice comedies on the stand and taking photographs of them. Fast forward to the 30s, the 1930s, and she was working at a riding stable, worked with working with the horses, and Walt and Roy were very much into polo at that point and very successful. Well, Ruthie Thompson, what are you doing here? You need to come work for us. Well, I don't know anything about animation. We'll, we'll train you. You've sat and watched me. We'll train you. Okay. So she went to work for the Disney Brothers in uh, about 1934, and she's one of two surviving women who worked on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Hmm. So a real trailblazer 
And uh, one of the really key women that I wanted to get to, while we still had her as living history. And after, after you dug into this research and uh, I assume the continuing process of, of doing the research, um, did it shift your own personal view about how women now working in the field both should feel about the history leading up to it, but also how they would now engage working in the field. This is certainly a concern of a lot of our students now who are going into the animation field and they don't know what that world looks like. They know it's still male-dominated. They hear good and bad stories depending on who they talk to in the field. But what do you think this research brings to both you from your, because you were a filmmaker and an animator, both your past experience and also for students who are now entering that world, how does this research impact them? You know, there's that great classic line of if, if you can see it, you can be it. And for me growing up, there were no women other than the voice actresses. That's all I heard about in terms of animation. Um, in terms of filmmaking, there were no women at all and uh, costuming, hair and makeup, and and those areas, that would be about it. So for me, it was, again, enlightening to learn that, sadly, that I had fallen into these false narratives that, what, one or two women and that's it? No. Women were there from the very beginning. So it's really sort of transformed me and in, in terms of enlightenment and, and under, coming to understand my own limited thought processes and how society had shaped those based on what limited views society shows us. Shows us. Uh, but for my students, this is transforming them. I have 70% women, 30% men in my classes. And everybody's sort of trying to figure this out. Why is this? Well, there are reasons why, because we have generations now who are growing up having seen the Ariels and the Mulans and the Bells of Disney's second golden era. But it's about time that we catch up with this. And it's about time we get this her story out there so that both young men and women can see that they've only had half the story. We've all missed out on this. We've only known half of of what it took to get these great films out there and that women had key and and powerhouse roles in terms of what they contributed artistically, narratively, design-wise. We've only been given a slice of that because we've all been lazy about it. Um, We've only assumed that it was all men. We've only focused on the men. There's been an imbalance all this time. You know, it's a fairly recent area of study, this idea of women's studies, but it really should be more about balancing our own collective studies. We're we're all missing out. And so it's been important to get this story out there, these stories out there, to to do just exactly that, balance our collective past. I hope you found the response from men, both (laughs) in the professional field and students, to your work? Do you find them intimidated? Do you find it a mixed uh, uh, 
set of reactions? Do you find some men are kind of engaged and opened up by this? Mm-hmm. What kind of what kind of measurement do you have? From it's that been response? great. When I was writing the book is where I had the biggest pushback, really, <laughs> because this whole idea of when I would just be explaining to colleagues that, oh, my gosh, women were everywhere. And do you know about this woman and that woman and what they did? And they're like, no, that's not right. That can't be. And I actually had men getting irate and pushing back. You can't put these women in the same category as this. You can't just do this. You know, that's the great Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas and Mark Davis. And you you can't put these women in that same category. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can. When you look at what they did and the level of artistry and what they brought to this, because it's their work you're seeing on the screen the men certainly designed the movement, but that's a blueprint to what the women came in and finished. And it's it's masterful when you see when you see these examples. And I've since then, those who did have some hair-raising experiences with this, uh, have since come back and said, you know, I apologize, you were right. There are so many incredible women that we've overlooked. Well, I, I certainly remember, I, I saw your presentation in, at the Ottawa Animation Film Festival. I started with the attitude of, you know, embracing what you were doing just as a concept. But when I saw your presentation, <laughs> when I saw your presentation, and saw the actual details and the personal stories and the work that people did, that really had a different impact. And even I think animation traditionally has belittled or put on a lower tier the ink and paint work, for yeah. instance. Yeah because it's all about the animators and the directors. But when you walk people through the steps and the research, both artistically and technically, mm-hmm. that the woman in the ink and paint department did, and then bring that to a fulfillment of seeing, for instance, the shot from Fantasia, that impact is so much stronger, and you, you find a much deeper appreciation for what you're talking about, that this is on an equal scale to... Uh, the work that the men were doing. It's its a different area, but the impact and the skill that it took is of equal merit. And I think the only way you fully embrace that is by seeing those details that you provide. Exactly. So it's one thing to read the book and hear their stories, but I knew that this had to be to move beyond that. You have to visually see the work and see what we're talking about in the book. Because when you see it, Again, it's about, I get emotional. You can be it. And the impact it's having, again, is a lot of catch-up to do with where we've been with our our animated past thus far with the men. And we're still making new discoveries there as animators. The other thing, too, is with the book, um, don't let the title fool you. It's, It's where women were even beyond ink and paint. That's kind of the through line here, the trunk of the tree, if you will. But where women branched too, which is another really remarkable story. And going back to our earliest uh, independent, uh, kind of artisanal women animators as early as 1916 with Helena Smith-Dayton and a few other, and even earlier than that as far as the impact of the industry. And in many ways, too, we can trace back where we are today with animation. We owe to Margaret Winkler and her work in terms of as the first woman producer and distributor of these animated novelties in the early 1920s, uh, she transformed this and turned it into an industry by 
um, making it animation novelties at the time, a standard part of the movie-going experience, and turning the Fleischer Coco the Clown and Sullivan's Felix the Cat into household names. And she was only at it for a short period of time, but she's the one who gave Walt Disney his start. He had trained under Margaret Winkler. People forget that if you look at the early correspondence, she's telling him, I know what my audiences want. You need to tighten this up, work on this character. And he's listening. I am convinced that he wouldn't have succeeded. He had his company out of Kansas City failed. He went through multiple failures before he got what hit. But he listened to her work and her advice. And then after she left, he actually maintained a, a very lovely friendship with her. Um, later into the 40s, when he had built the Burbank Studios, we have evidence where she came back. He helped her brother find work. Um, so he you know, held no animosity or any of that. And it was a really lovely, lovely circumstance. Um, and he admired her and admired her work. So there's still a lot to fill in with this herstory of animation. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Intersections, the RIT podcast, a production of RIT Marketing and Communications. To learn more about our university, go to www.rit.edu. To hear more podcasts, find us on iTunes, TuneIn, or visit us at www.soundcloud.com slash RIT Tigers. <laughs>